Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, the director behind Session 9, The Machinist, Trans-Siberian, Homicide Life on the Streets, and so much more, Brad Anderson. Brad, how are things? Things are good. Things are good. I'm, uh, I'm working, staying busy, which is, to me, is the best case. So yeah, things are pretty good. Well, you got to be happy that you're up in Canada for this whole pandemic, I assume. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's certainly the only place, uh, or one of the few places right now, I think we can be working, making movies, making shows. Um, you know, I was up in Vancouver uh, back in March doing a pilot and got pulled out of there like everyone else did when the, when the you know, when the sort of epidemic started to kick in. Um, but came back uh, to Canada a couple weeks ago, went through my two weeks of quarantine in the in Winnipeg, um, preparing a movie that we're going to be shooting here in the next few weeks. Um, yeah, so it's very nice to be back. I, you know, I shot a film here a couple of years ago as well, um, and it's a good place to be during this craziness, although, I, you know, my family's back in New York City, but um, it's a good place to be shooting movies right now. Well, I want to take you way back. Happy Accident started you on this amazing path. What did you learn the most from this period in your filmmaking, and how did it? And how did this seem different than the earlier films of your career? Um, well, that was a uh, real like, like those the earlier the first two movies I had done were in that vein, like this very kind of um, labor of love, independent, smaller movies. Um, I wrote and directed those films. This was sort of back when I was just sort of getting a foothold in the business, if you will. Um, and, you know, I think for me, it just kind of set in stone that um, this is what I love doing. It, it, it made it clear to me that I could, number one, you know, make a living doing this, and this could become a career, if you will, not just a hobby. And number two, I love doing it. And it sort of it, it made it clear that the process and the journey of making a movie is something that I feel like just made me feel, just gave me such satisfaction. Um, and I love that, you know, I love that film too, Happy Accents, because to me it was very much a, you know, I, my films have gotten much darker over the years. I started off with the romantic comedies. Um, you know, Next Up Wonderland was one of my earlier films, like Happy Accidents, kind of a whimsical, romantic film. Um, so I still love, I and mean, I still love that, that tone. Um, I've sort of taken a detour or veered into the darker side just because, I don't know, I just like those films as well. You know, I have a, an eclectic taste in movies, I guess you could say. Um, but, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I like, I, I look back on those films that was that were done kind of in the heyday of uh, the independent film scene back in the mid to late nineties when indie film was all the rage. And there were a lot of uh, opportunities for young filmmakers to make their movies, get them financed. There was a lot of experimentation. There's an excitement, I think in general about movies and small movies, not studio uh, movies, but these smaller independent films. And so that to me was like how I kind of, broke into it and I still I mean I'm still what I do I mean the movie I'm doing now is certainly an independent small independent film it's um, kind of my my 
it's these are the choices I made to keep the independence and the freedom to make the movies I want to do, um, and doing them on a budget level that makes that possible. You know, I've sort of done that throughout all my career throughout the films. Um, so yeah, that was like uh, that movie along with uh, Next Up Wonderland kind of helped introduce me to uh, the business side of things to a certain degree, but. It also, uh, you know, kind of locked it in for me that this was what I was going to do with my life, you know. Well, you were going down this certain path in terms of genre with the rom-com, but then it came to session nine. How hard was it for you to get funding for this film? And what was the spark around that time that you decided, fuck it, I'm going full horror this time? (laughs) Yeah, maybe because I'd done these, these first three movies were all in the vein of the, as I said, kind of indie romantic comedies, um, which was kind of a genre in and of itself back then. Like, there were a lot of them that I guess maybe when you're young and in, in that early phase of your life, uh, you know, making movies about loneliness and meeting someone and all that seems relevant. <laughs> it seems less relevant now. Uh, but I had done a few of these uh, these movies, and I kind of was getting offers to do bigger movies like that were in that sort of tone or in that genre. And it just, I just, it, you know, I guess I get, I, I get, in, I get a little antsy when I feel like I'm doing the same sort of thing, or when I feel like I'm getting pigeonholed, if you will. Uh, and I just also, to be honest, I've always loved you know, horror, elevated horror movies, psychological thrillers, dark films. I mean, filmmakers that, you know, I kind of, uh, uh, that I admired in my film school days and such were, you know, like the Kubricks and the Hitchcocks and the Polanskis, like darker, darker, more psychologically driven stories. Uh, those are, that's kind of what's always interested me um, from the beginning. So the chance to, it just felt like, oh, let's try doing one of those, one of these kinds of movies. Um, there was no reason other than just like, why not, you know? Um, and we got the, you know, we so we wrote a script, my friend Steve Jevin and I, who's also appears in the movie. And we uh, we wrote it because we, uh, we, I lived in Boston at the time and a, a little bit outside of the city, north of Boston, um, is a big abandoned, uh, or was a big abandoned mental hospital, Danvers State Mental Hospital, which is the one we shot at in the movie. And uh, it just, every time I drove north, I would drive by that place and it just looked like such a spooky little haunted castle on a hill. And one day we, were, we got access to it to sneak in with a couple of these sort of urban sort of explorers, as they call themselves, people who explore abandoned subway stations and those kinds of things. And they took us into the place and showed us around, Steve and I, and gave us some backstory to the place and the history of it. And the fact that this is where they, you know, first experimented with lobotomies and Edgar Allan Poe and, and H.P. Lovecraft wrote about this building and this, this asylum. And it just had such a cool history. So it seemed like right for a kind of story to be written about using that location, so we, we, we crafted Session 9 based on the location and intended to shoot it all at this one space and were able to get the permission to do that, um, which gave, of course, the movie a real great tone because this wasn't a set that we built. This was the real place where real patients lived and died. And, you know, so that movie, you know, we were able to get financing for the film from, um, you know, one of the... the uh, companies back in the called USA Films back in those days, and uh, 
And, you know, we made it for nothing. We made it for, well, at least in the grand scheme of things, it was not much. It was like a, you know, made for less than a million dollars and we shot it in 20 days. It was the quick one, right? Um, but that kind of gave it, that, it, it was sort of needed to be that kind of a movie. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I love that, that process of uh, not, um, you know, kind of moving from <clears throat> genre hopping, if you if you want to call it that, you know, like not necessarily doing the same kind of movie uh, back to back, although I've done that as well. Um, you know, I, I, I like to experiment a little bit as a director and as a storyteller, um, finding different kinds of stories to tell. Of course, you get you get kind of known or, or maybe recognizes the person who can do a certain kind of story and specializes in that or does it well, and then those are the kinds of movies that you're, you're easier to get off the ground. But but I, I do like to have, I hope to have the ability to, to go other places. Session 9 was a certain certainly a departure from Happy Accidents or my other movies, but but um, it was a, it was a, it, it, for me it was an exhilarating one because I just like I like challenging myself, telling different types of stories, you know. Well, when you first walked into the abandoned hospital and you noticed that there was like all the graffiti and the vandalism that had happened, did it worry you at all? <laughs> for what reason? Well, like worried you... me that there might be some people there or threats or dangers and things. I'm not even thinking that way. I'm thinking more on continuity-wise. Did you think that you were just going to come the next day and everything that you had planned for a shot could just completely be fucked over? <laughs> I just uh, well, we had, I mean, when we shot there, we were given, uh, we were lucky to have gotten the uh, permission to shoot there because it was an abandoned building that was a place that kids broke into, like we did initially. Um, and you know, they would often go there and like you said, they would tag things and have parties and you know, it's a kind of place that draws youthful adventurers. So, you know, they were a little leery about letting us shoot a movie there, but we were able to figure out and get permission when we shot there, we were, we took over the building and, you know, we had people guarding our sets or whatever. So that, that, that exact same thing that you just suggested would ha could happen, didn't. But yeah, I could. I mean, we we were we, we 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 sort of were really creative. I think in terms of how we wove in the real locations that we found when we explored that place into the story. Like there really was a room, for instance, in the basement that was full of old uh, audio tapes, like in the movie, boxes of old patients' um, files with pictures of the patients and descriptions of what their illnesses were, and tapes of their sessions. I mean, that's where that kind of idea of using that as a kind of bookend device in the movie came from because we found a room that had all this stuff in it and we found rooms that had like patients' rooms or they called them seclusions where the the walls were covered with old, with old cutouts from magazines and, and, and books and things like where they created these little collages on their walls as a way to kind of kill time or just to kind of personalize their rooms. So all the kind of little details that were featured in the story were kind of pulled from the real location, which was really interesting way to work, as opposed to, say, coming up with these ideas in our head and then having to create them from scratch. Like, we just took advantage of what was already there and just wove the story around the real location and the real things in it. Well, you also got a lot out of that Sony 24P. Were you nervous using such a new format at the time? 
It was a new camera and a new, I mean, I think the new Star Wars movie at the time, it had been shooting with it and there were, it was, start, it was starting to make inroads, but we were one of the first, as far as I remember, like features that shot entirely with the Sony 24P camera that was that, that was the latest one at the time and 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 had a theatrical release with that you know bumped it up the film and so forth mm-hmm. so it was uh it was a little bit of i think there were also movies a little bit of like a test to see how it, the process worked and it was definitely different i mean now of course it's par for the course but um this was the first time i had worked on a digital format um and it was different in many ways um it felt a little cumbersome at first, but once we got used to it, it was cool because it was the first time in my in, in my experience that you know you could look at a monitor with a live image that you were about to shoot in high high definition and see exactly how it's going to look. And you know, it was the kind of thing where we started to light the and create the look of the movie based on what we were seeing on the TV monitor, on the you know on the playback monitor. That was a different experience for filmmakers who were. Had, always you know not had that vivid image to look at until the movie was until the film was shot so it was different it it was a little nerve-wracking maybe not as much for me and more for my director of photography but um but it was cool it was an interesting experience and that was a part of what made it unique as well shooting with that new format well i know you had a whole subplot cut out of the film but is there a vast amount of footage on the cutting room floor, and could we ever expect you to revisit the film in the future for, let's say, a redux? <laughs> it's funny you say that, because uh, uh, what I will say is that my friend Steve and I are working on a, a script as we speak, actually. Um, it's kind of a, a Session 9 prequel, um, and it's sort of about the story within the story of Session 9, about this character, Mary Hobbs, who was like a patient at the hospital. So it's like a sort of story that's said in the past, but that dovetails into this story in Session 9. So it's kind of a prequel. And we're we're working on a script for that. We're hoping that we, you know, we can get that off the ground. It'd be really cool to kind of get deeper into the mythology of what we had just sort of brushed over in the original movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, to answer the question about, there always is a ton of stuff on the editing floor and things that got left out. There wasn't much in that movie because we didn't have a lot of time to shoot lots of stuff we weren't going to use. We cut out that sequence with the old woman, like homeless woman, because it just didn't, we just felt it distracting. But there's always, you know, I think every filmmaker looks back on the final project final cut and then hindsight thinks oh what if we had done it a different way or wouldn't it have been cool if we included that scene that we cut out you know and but i don't know i i also feel like once a movie's done it's for my feeling is that once i finish a movie and it's put it out there into the world if you, you know to kind of just get seen i feel like i step back and and give it up and kind of like letting your children you know, grow up on their own. I don't. I never. I don't feel like they need to kind of get back into the, the movie. But the idea of doing like a a sequel or a prequel to a movie that I've done or something is kind of a cool idea. You know, but to get back and open up the old the old dailies and rethink it is like, <laughs> you know, I moved on. You know, I couldn't bear to do it. 
Well, before session nine, you got to have your hand at Homicide Life on the Streets. That show to filmmakers is like no other. It was rich in its cinematic sensibilities. It was HBO before HBO really started to break through. Did you enjoy being a part of such a monumental show? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was my first television gig. I'd never done any TV before Homicide. Um, a lot of young, a lot of sort of indie filmmakers were kind of getting, you know, there was this, as I said, there was that sort of buzz around independent film, so they were hiring a lot of filmmakers like myself to do episodes, and that was, so that was the first time I'd done a TV show um, and kind of started to understand how that process works. And it was cool. I never, you know, I, my memories of it were like it was a different experience, but it was like making a little movie in, you know, ten days instead of thirty days or something. Um, but it also helped open up or start my television career. And I've done a lot of. I mean, I've done more TV than I've done film uh, over the years and pilots and so forth. And it also introduced me to David Simon, who I ended up doing some episodes of The Wire, which to me is even more of a classic show. And and a critically acclaimed show that was also shot in Baltimore um, and did other shows with his company, Treme, which is another show that was shot in New Orleans. Um, so, I, you know, kind of opened some doors for me in the TV world and working with really, you know, good um, showrunners and good writers and good shows, you know, it's something I've tried to do over the years too. Um, you can't, I mean, at least from, from my, in my, for me, I, I need to have both those things as, part of my roster is doing my films and but then it often takes time to get a movie financed and off the ground and often in that time is when you find you can do some episodes of a show or do a pilot and um and it really is helpful and also opens up a lot of experiences like i've gone all over the world doing television as well so i had a lot of cool experiences doing the shows i've done so equally interesting in a different way you don't own it as much you don't feel as much you don't feel as like connected to the shit tv stuff that i've done but but it's still like a you know it still keeps you creative and busy do you enjoy the fast-paced nature of television yeah i enjoy the fast-paced nature of everything i do because it's always fast-paced just by it's very by the virtue of the fact that it's usually their lower budget then need to be everything needs to be done quickly. Like the movie that I'm prepping now, we're going to shoot in 31 days. You know, I mean, you know, and it's like a low budget movie, and it's got to be fast, and we move quickly, and that's just how I work in general, regardless of whether it's TV or movies. Television is, in some ways, just television is yeah, it's its own sort of pace, even more so than a movie. But uh, but I like that. I like I don't like to overthink things. And, I mean, I, I, I like working at that kind of pace. It, I find it exhilarating. Like when you don't have, a, you have to think on your feet. You don't have a lot of time to, you know, just ponder stuff. Um, and it can be, it's not for everyone, but, I, but personally, I, I like the vibe of it. It keeps me, keeps me uh, on my feet. Well, The Machinist, can you take us through how that project came to be? Yeah, The Machinist kind of stems out of session nine. I, my movie was, uh, screened at the, this festival in Barcelona called Sitges, the Session 9 was, and it you know got some recognition there, and some Spanish producers saw it and were interested in talking to me about 
um, if I had any projects that um, I would be interested in doing in Spain. Um, and I was given Scott Kosar's script uh, by my agent. I really loved it. We, you know, we Christian Bale had read it, and he was interested in doing it. But at that time, we couldn't find an American financier. Christian's value didn't have much. He didn't have as much as, as he does now, obviously. Um, so we couldn't find any financing in the states to get the movie off the ground. So I went to the, this company in Barcelona, and they weren't willing to do it. But the gig was that we had to shoot the film in Barcelona. The movie's set in some kind of unidentified American West Coast sort of city, like L.A., but it's not ever truly like identified. So. You know, I, I felt like, yeah, there's a way we could probably pull off Barcelona as some, like, generic American world if we're just really careful about it. And that's what we did. So we ended up shooting a movie in Barcelona with Christian and his company financing it. And, it, you know, I think the fact that we did it there, just the nature of the movie is it's a little bit of a fever dream and a little weird and hallucinogenic in a, in a way or you're kind of in this guy's twisted reality so nothing is really as it seems and the fact that we had to kind of create a false um world in barcelona like a fake america a fake american reality in this spanish city you know it's surrounded by like you know gaudi and like dolly and all these like amazing like european architecture and stuff it was a tr challenge, but I think it gave the movie a weirdness that maybe resonates, you know, between the lines. It made it a little off, you know. Um, you're not really sure where you are. It doesn't feel familiar, yet it doesn't feel totally strange either. So that was kind of effective in, in how it turned out. So, yeah, that movie, uh, you know, um, because Christian, of course, the big thing with him in that movie was he had to lose all that weight and... Um, he didn't have to lose the weight, actually. He, he chose to do that um, on his own um, when he read the script because Scott had described the character as a uh, as a as a walking uh, skeleton or a scarecrow or something. And uh, Christian, in his literal like kind of attempt to create the character, kind of took that quite literally. And uh, yeah, he, he lost I don't know what it was forty, fifty pounds, something crazy. And you know. Uh, morphed himself into this character who is essentially being eaten alive by his own guilty conscience and that's kind of what he became in the movie and was and uh you know when you work with actors like that i mean i was fortunate to have that experience with him you know you realize how committed and how passionate people can be about their craft as he is so it's quite inspiring um and, you know, that movie opened doors for me as well for doing other kinds of things. Um, and I made it, my movie that I did after that was also fine to the same company. So I was like, you know, that's often how it works. Like, you know, you, you make one, they like it, you make another, you kind of try to keep the train going as long as you can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Scott had a lot of Nine Inch Nails references in The Machinist. Did you feel like having a soundtrack, if you were to put them in, of that much industrial having them and their counterparts would have taken away from the overall film or were the Hitchcockian elements so much that having a score in the vein of Bernard Herrmann just worked better for you in your head? Yeah, I think it did. I didn't I wanted to do something a little classier and, and, uh, 
and the references were more like Hitchcock and Polanski, not like, you know, I mean, that's Scott's, that was how he just, that, I think he had, that was his favorite band or something, but, but I was more interested in a kind of weird, eerie, like, kind of dated score in a way. We used the theremin in that score, which was like an old instrument from the 1950s, like sci-fi movies and stuff, to create, again, the vibe of just, like, weirdness and, 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 and unsettled kind of reality. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, music to me has always been a key thing in movies, you know, like, I mean, even with Session 9, like, the score in that is, like, really twisted and kind of tonal and, 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 and jarring and, and, you know, in keeping with the, the, the story. And similarly with Session, with, with, with Machinist, it was about creating a score that made you, you know, kind of question the reality of what you were watching or, or the sanity of the character you were learning about. Um, you know, with my earlier movies, like, you know, like next stop Wonderland and those romantic comedies, it was about, you know, it was like lyrical, like Brazilian music. I've always like music has always been very inspirational in terms of, for me, helping tell the story and get into the spirit of the story and, and inspire me to kind of like come up with ideas like when I'm writing or cutting a movie like I was the music is really always a key part of that I was it's, and it's to me so it's an instant like connection like if you get if you find like a piece of score or whatever that works with a scene it's just like it's so obvious immediately like you just suddenly know like that clicks you know so uh with with that movie uh, it was the score for uh, this movie called The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is this movie from the 1950s, like a sci-fi like movie about you know aliens that come to Earth, and it's kind of got this really eerie, yeah. Bernard, I think it was Bernard Herrmann esque like score, but he used the theremin in it, and uh, and I just when we were cutting the film, we used that as temp. You know, often you'll use music from another movie mm-hmm. as temporary music. And we use that, and it just like worked. And I was like, "That's that's that's let's use that music, you know." So Rocky Banos, he was the Spanish uh, composer for uh, <clears throat> Machinist. He he uh, he did the score for it, which I thought was really good. Well, what was your reaction then when you were told you were going to become a master of horror? <laughs> uh, oh wow, I'm going to be a master of horror. I'm crazy and others. Uh, well, that was fun. That was a that was a series on uh, I think it was Showtime, and it was a uh, you know like they just had a bunch of different directors that specialize in that horror genre or, or dark stories. I was lucky to be one of those people. But what was great is that they gave you uh, they just basically said we want you to make an hour long story, whatever you want. You write scripts or not, or option something, or write it do whatever you want. Like, they didn't give you any, there were no parameters. It was just, like, make cool, dark stories. Sort of like a, like a, uh, you know, like an anthology-type show. Mm-hmm. There's no connection between the shows. But I, I, I really enjoyed that. So I did, mine was called uh, Sounds Like, and it was about a character who has a, an acute, an, like a super good sense of hearing, but to the point where it kind of drives him mad, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, he kind of goes a little crazy, <laughs> kind of keeping with the theme. 
in many of my movies in which characters kind of lose their minds or, or kind of go, go off the deep end. Um, and he does in this one as well. Uh, it ends with him cutting off his own ears, you know, which is quite an image. Uh, but I really, I thought the movie was, I thought the, sh- the, the show was fun to do. And, and I loved doing, um, my episodes with this actor, Chris Bauer, who's just an amazing character actor, um, played the lead in it. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And, and that's the sort of television that's, that's really cool when they, you know, you, when you have that kind of leeway to take chances and just sort of do what you want, you know, that's, that's fantastic. Well, you got to be a master of horror again with fear itself. Do you, were you a fan of these kinds of series growing up stuff like tales from the crypt, twilight zone, outer limits? Yeah, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, less Tales from the Crypt. I mean, that was a little too on the nose to me. Um, I love, I mean, Twilight Zone certainly has been thematic in the, some of the stories I've depicted in the movies I've done, you know, kind of weird, twisty uh, surprise endings, you know, rug pull moments, things like that. Especially Vanishing um, on 7th Street. That is very... Vanishing on 7th Street. Yeah, right. I mean, that was a... Um, that was based on a, a, a script um, that uh, Tony Jaswinski wrote, and uh, I just that was one that was like very much. He was very much inspired by the Twilight Zone vibe, as well as like <clears throat> like Stephen King, and uh, you know, again, like a movie that that lives with that 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 sets up a mystery that ultimately, you know. I love stories where you don't ever need to fully explain what the, to fully explain the mystery. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's always good to, to keep uh, an audience having questions at the end. As long as those questions aren't dissatisfying, as long as they kind of fuel an interest in what you just showed them. Uh, so I like, like that movie is very much, a mystery wrapped within a mystery <laughs> wrapped within an enigma. I mean, that was like, you know, that was sort of, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic movie about characters that a guy wakes up one morning and everyone has disappeared. Everyone's village. There's no one left. He's the only one there. I mean, it's been done before, but we were kind of going for a little bit more of this existential drama and all the story is set at a bar where he meets a couple other survivors and they're trying to simply just figure out what the hell happened. Like, what, why is there no, why did all the lights go out? What happened to all the people? There's no electricity. Everything's stopped. Like the universe has just come to a, to a, to a stop. And like, I just love those kind of stories that, that ask those big questions, but don't necessarily feel obliged to like give you the full, full on explanation as to why, you know? Um, and there are often explanations in in this in there. Like I like to leave little Easter eggs here and there, a uh, little explanation as to what might be going on. But I never feel the need to be overly explicit. And but that's just my nature. Like I don't I don't like films that like over that hit me over the head with explanation. I like ones that keep me a little bit guessing. You know, I think that's more interesting. Well, Trans Siberian is one of your most underrated films to date partially because it feels so personal and so realized. What can you tell us about your trip on the Trans-Siberian Express as a youth, and what was the spark to bring that story into film form? Yeah, that movie was, again, one that um, I did after Machinist, and it was based on my own experiences 
uh, or at least it was inspired by my own trip on the Trans-Siberian train, which is the, you know, the seven-day journey from Beijing, from Beijing, China, across Siberia to Moscow. It's like the longest train journey in the world. And I took it in college. I traveled through Asia. You know, I did a little backpacking around the world kind of thing. And I took the train. I'd studied Russian in college, and I was so I had a little language ability. And it was just a cool experience meeting lots of really colorful characters on the train, like people that could be criminals, people that could be, you know, like, you know, wheelers and dealers, you know, it's kind of like a really crazy train. And uh, you're going through like the remote parts of Siberia. And, uh, and so that experience, I felt like it would be really cool to set a story on, uh, on that train because it's an, it's a, it's a, it's an enclosed, like contained uh, world, right? I mean, like, and you, you never have to even get off of it. Like, all the story can take place on this train, and it becomes kind of like this crucible of, of suspense. It was very much, in, you know, my interest in Hitchcock and and creating suspense, and you know, this was very much in that vein. This movie, Transsiberian, is a bit of a murder mystery, a little, um, you know, murder on the Orient Express, kind of, but not quite. Um, and that was just like the idea of creating a good story on a train i mean that was like a very that was almost a genre back in the 40s and 50s movies like strangers on a train uh, for instance and uh and so i uh i just thought it'd be cool so um you know i was on a script with my friend will and we uh oh, we got the, the company the finance um the machinist to uh to do it we shot it over in lithuania and we created uh you know a whole train set and yeah, I love the movie. I, I, I think it's a, you know, it's got a great cast. It's got Woody Harrelson, Ben Kingsley, Emily Mortimer. And, uh, and you know, to me, it was like a very personal project, I guess, just because, you know, it was sort of riffing off of my own experience. And, and I love those kind of stories where in this one, you know, she ends up killing a guy by sort of in a, in a, in a, in a, in a when he attempts to rape her. And then the, the whole movie is really about her, like, whether she's going to tell anyone. And then she leaves him out in, like, you know, the forest. And the story is when she gets back on the train, and it's kind of like, how is she going to explain what she's done? Or is she just going to try to get away with it, you know? Um, so it's a, you know, the tagline was, like, something like, you know, you can't escape your lies, you know? Um, and that's, like, other movies, like, like, Machinist, for instance, or Session 9, where characters are always confronted with a certain truth about themselves. And the question is really, do they, um, if they decide to pop to it or just bury it someplace dark where they never have to deal with it, you know? Uh, I think that's been some weird theme, common theme that's run through some of the films I've done. It's like that sense of repressing your guilt uh, to a deep place. Um, and then what happens when someone discovers it, um, or if you discover it yourself and like suddenly something that you were unfamiliar with or something that you didn't want to know about yourself is presented to you. Like, what does that do to your mind? You know? Um, and so that's, uh, you know, there's been themes that I've done even in the last couple of films, um, in the movie I'm doing now, even to a certain degree, it's like this themes I've just returned to for some reason in the various films I've done. Well, speaking of uh, learning Russian in school, you majored in anthropology and Russian. What was the moment that you realized you needed to kind of leave this behind and focus on your filmmaking? 
I studied anthropology, visual anthropology in college. Um, you know, it was, it, so it had a film component. It was, it, the spe- it was sort of about documentaries about that had anthropological or ethnographic film, you know, like films about other cultures, other peoples, other, other systems of, of, you know, uh, tribal systems and so forth. I just thought it was really interesting how film, you could depict a, a world and document a world. With film, I got into documentary filmmaking at the time. Um, that was where I saw myself going. Um, and uh, But, you know, I think ultimately I just I just was more interested in telling stories and, and, and creating something, creating a world as opposed to simply documenting one. Um, although my first few films, and I continue to, to sort of have a style that I like to embrace in some movies that's very much in that style, you know, that, that documentary style, if you will, of kind of finding the moments. My first couple of movies were highly improvised and highly, you know, kind of almost like documented as, as much as they were, um, you know, deliberately created. So, yeah, ultimately I, 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 I wanted to realize that filmmaking would be a cool thing to do. It wasn't directing as much as editing. At first I was started as an editor, really. I went to a film program in London briefly, um, London Film School, but then came back to the States. And when I was living in Boston at the time, I started to work as an editor on many other people's projects, small independent films. I worked at a TV station. I was doing a lot of editing, which I think to me was a really good way into the into the business, and it's particularly a good way to learn how to tell stories, you know, because that's where it's all at, is when you're in the editing room, you can take anything, and it can, you can tell a story with it, you can find a way to shape it into uh, a story, and build suspense, or create drama, or whatever, so that was the thing that was most exciting to me, so I started that way, and then I started writing around scripts, and the first movie I ever did was like, you know, little mini, you know, just an indie film that was made on credit cards, you know, a la, you know, all those kind of early movies like Clerks and so forth, like made for a dime, essentially. And it got into Sundance, the film festival Sundance, and that kind of gave me a connection and to other producers and financiers who were interested in working with me on doing another movie. So that's how it sort of started for me. Well... In 2013, you did what I think is your throwback to the 1970s with The Call. How did that project come to be? Were you itching to try to get your hands on something that big at that time? Or did that just kind of fall into your lap? It kind of like, I mean, so a lot of times the way, I mean, with that movie, it just was a script I had read and flirted with and a couple times, actually, and um, and it just, it's one of those things where that might not necessarily, the way, the reason a movie sometimes comes together is just, is just a series of, of coinciding events. Like, you know, the money came together, they, they, they had them, the money was in place. They, they had interest from Halle Berry and I had read it and they called me and I talked to them about it. These are the producers. And, and next thing you know, it's like, well, we can maybe, maybe we can really do this thing, you know? So. It came together, and you know, I had other things as every director does, multiple other projects that are in your hopper that you're trying to get off the ground. And often it really boils down to like, well, which one is most likely to go? Like, I want to work, I want to make a movie, I don't want to, I mean, I want to make 
my films first and foremost, but I'm willing, I want to do a movie, and this is a movie that the script is pretty good, and it's got Holly on board, and it's ready to go, I'm going to do it. So it's kind of an opportunity, but it was also like fun because I like the idea of just doing something that's very linear and very straightforward, and it's not somebody's like some of my other my kind of movies where there there's lots of there's layers of interpretation or layers to the characters. It's pretty it's pretty straightforward. It's like a you know it's like a you know a woman nine one one call operator who's trying to save this young girl's life and like you know uh, and find the guy who kidnapped her. It's like pretty straightforward. But it was a chance to do something like really action driven, and because it's that's really what it is. It's very um, you know kind of pulsy and it moves very quickly, and um, and also the thing that just the other thing is I always look in, in a project like is there some part of is there a world within the story that is something that would be really interesting to explore, like to learn about, to try to depict on film and. In the call, it was like the 911 call center. Like, I've always been curious about how those things operate. The women, mostly women, who are the operators and how they deal with, you know, the trauma of having to, you know, get a phone call from someone who's who's dying in a car accident or being stalked by a killer. Like, how do you deal with that? And then go 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 back to your apartment that night after work and, like, not having nightmares, you know? So it was like, to me, it was like, it's, it was a cool chance to sort of explore that world. And, and, and I don't think it had really been depicted on film, the 911 call operator world. We've seen movies about police officers and firemen and, you know, but not the people who work behind the scenes. You call those people and tell them where to go and deal with it on the phone. Like, that was kind of cool. So that was enough. That was felt like, to me, a chance to do something a little fresh. So that's kind of how that evolved in my mind. Now, what was your relationship with theaters like growing up? Are you happy that things like Netflix are taking over and helping out the indie world? And do you see theaters surviving this pandemic right now? Or do you think everything is just going to go to uh, streaming now? I mean, that's everyone's big question. I mean, I hope that theaters survive. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, like, I'm, you know, I'm of the age where I grew up watching movies, and, like, you know, you don't have to be that old to say that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah, I love I love going to a movie theater and seeing a movie on the big screen with an audience sometimes. Sometimes I like to just go on my own and see a movie on the big screen. And, you know, my film, my most moving and pivotal movie going experiences have been seeing a dark theater like in the morning, like I would go to movies matinees and no one else is there. And just like, you feel like you have your own personal screen. It's a really you know vivid experience. Nothing beats it. Nothing. You can't, if you can't, you can't replicate that experience watching a show on a television or even on a computer screen or let alone like, you know, your iPad sitting on a couch, you know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's totally different. So yeah. Do I hope theaters survive? Yeah, I think they will. I mean, I don't think they're ever going to go away. It's just going to be a question of, like, you know, how, what level they survive at. Um, and I think that this has made people comfortable and conditioned people to, who weren't maybe that way before, to be okay with watching movies on, watching shows on Netflix or watching shows, watching movies more frequently, just, you know, sitting in their, in their living room bedroom or whatever but um i mean i I have no beef with the streamers they're they're what's really keeping the business alive in many ways um 
I mean, what Netflix is now is what the whole independent film scene was like 25 years ago. You know, the movie I did, the last film I did before the one I'm doing now was a Netflix movie. And it was, you know, it, the experience of doing it was no different to me than it was doing The Machinist or any other movie I've done. It was just like the money was coming from a giant corporation, but it felt very independent. And they didn't, they, they, they treated the filmmakers, they treated me, and I know that they, with other filmmakers, the same way, generally. They give you a lot of leeway. They let you make the movies. They're very director-driven in that way. So it was a really good experience. So I think it's great. Would I like? Would I prefer to have that movie screened in a movie theater, like theatrically released? Yeah. And and that maybe they're going to maybe they'll. I mean, well, now the COVID has thrown everything on its head. But the thinking was that you know places like Netflix and Amazon and so forth were going to get back into theatrical distribution business. Whether they're going to do that or not now, I don't know. Um, but they got so much money, they could probably open up theater chains all over the world, you know. Um, and maybe that's something they'll do. But I mean, I think it's a, I think it's good to have both, right? I think it's good that we have the ability now that I can just go on my, you know, go to Apple, iTunes, or whatever, or anything, and I can Netflix, and I can just like call up a movie I want to see and watch it. It's unbelievable. It still surprises me. It still freaks me out that it's like. You can watch whatever you want at any point. Um, so you can really get, you can just like, you know, you have all that, all that at your fingertips. Um, but I still feel, you know, the, the ritual of getting up and getting in your car and driving to the movie theater and going into the movie theater and paying for your popcorn, sitting, finding your seat and the lights go down and the movie comes up. I mean, that, that still to me is like something that I cherish and I hope it, I, I, yeah, I hope it never goes away, but. Who knows? You know, who knows? this thing, COVID, has changed everything. But I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to be permanent. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't know. We'll see. I hope not, but we'll see. Well, speaking of Netflix, you did just do an episode of Clickbait. What can we expect from uh, from that show? Um, I don't know. I mean, I did the the pilot for that show. Um, they were. We shot that in Australia, and again, the same thing happened with all these other shows. They weren't able to, I don't think they've been able to finish um, because of the virus and they had to shut down and I don't know when they're going to finish. Um, so I don't know when it's going to come out. <laughs> but that show's cool. It's, uh, it's like a, uh, a sort of character-driven uh, drama about um, a woman whose husband is kidnapped and um, the kidnappers put his put up on like a kind of YouTube type channel, like, a you know, a, 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 an image of him in a chair with a gun to his head, basically saying, and a note that says, you know, it, you know, when, when this when site gets 5 million hits, he will die, you know, and, and, it, and it becomes kind of like a, 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 a kind of a story about um, why, why, why was this guy kidnapped? He's a family man. He has two kids, a lovely, loving wife. What, what, what did he do? Why, why? What's the story behind it? And all the different characters in life, in his life, trying to figure out um, what happened to him and why he was put in this situation. And of course, it's all done against the ticking clock because by the when it reaches that five million hits, like he dies. So it's kind of a cool thriller but it's very much in the vein of those kind of stories that explore the different uh ways that we the different ways that um 
a, a character can can be perceived by those in his life. You know, like the wife has one vision of this guy, the son has another vision of him, the grandparents see him in another way. So it's like, who is this man, this man that was kidnapped? It's kind of a cool premise, and uh, I think it turned out well. But um, again, unfortunately, like so much television now, um, uh, it remains to be seen when they're going to be able to finish it and, and, it, and when it will come out on Netflix. You know, hopefully they'll be able to finish it. Well, the fanboy in me has to ask, are you still in pre-production on Concrete Island? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, that movie was, that project was one that I was going to do. Scott Kosar and Christian and I got together to do another movie. Christian was going to be in it based on the J.G. Ballard novel. Great story, great cool idea, you know, a guy I marooned in his would, car. I think that you would be perfect to direct that story, so... I know, but we tried... The, the reality is we tried right, to get a script that everyone could agree on, you know? It's a tough novel to adapt. I mean, his stuff is tough to adapt in general. And so we just couldn't find a way to get it to a place where me and Christian and everyone just felt like this is ready to go and we can finance it. I mean, it's still... It, you know, who knows? It could still. I mean, I still Scott. I, I think Scott still has the option on it, and um, I don't know if Christian would still want to do it. But it's a good question. I mean, you know, I always say never say never. I mean, that was like about maybe eight years ago that we were trying to get that off the ground. But um, you know, many of the films I've done the past couple, the past few films I've done have sat on shelves for. Uh, uh, like Beirut, for instance, was on a shelf for 19 years. Tony Gilroy's script before he was able, before we were able to, before it came to me, and we found a way to get it made and make it into a movie. Um, you know, uh, the movie I did, Fractured, with Netflix, was you know had been floating around for 10 years. I mean, you know, sometimes projects take time to gestate and finally get made. And it would be cool to see that movie made. I mean, he would be perfect in it too, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and he was into it, but you know, it's like a tough ad- adaptation, you know, it's like, you know, the guy's basically in his car for like the whole movie, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> trying to figure out a way to survive. It's like Robinson Crusoe in the middle of the city. And like, I love that premise, but like trying to come up with a way to make it interesting and visual that, you know, it was, it was tough. It's a tough adaptation basically. So it boils down to maybe someday. Well, what can we expect from you coming up, Brad? Right now I'm working on a movie um, called Blood, which is a sort of drama about it's a, a woman whose son develops a, 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 a taste for blood, and not in a vampire way, but just in a kind of almost clinical way. And, uh, and she has to figure out... Um, how she can keep her son alive. He basically can't survive that blood and how, he, how, how she can keep him alive um, and what what lengths she'll go in order to do that. So it's like an intense sort of family drama in a way, <laughs> uh, but dark as is my ilk. Um, and she, uh, so anyway, we're, we're, yeah, we're doing that. Um, we're shooting that here in Winnipeg. Um, that's what I'm doing now. Um, what's next for me, I don't know. I've got, three or four different projects. As I said, we all tend to have multiple things in hovering patterns waiting to go. 
and I don't know what'll what which of those would be the one that would go next for me. I, I'm just written a script um, uh, with the guy I wrote Trans Siberian with, which is based on a, uh, a short story, um, and it's uh, it's uh, by Jack London called To Build a Fire, and it's a, it's a very uh, kind of it's like an epic story about a kind of survival in the, in the, um, in the American. And, uh, in, 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 in the Yukon, um, Klondike territory. So anyway, I've, I've got that, that I'm trying to, I'm going to try to get out there. Um, so there's a few things, um, and they're all very different. You know what I mean? And I, I don't want to talk about each of them, but I mean, basically, my hope is that to, to get another uh, another movie going off the ground after this one, um, uh, we'll see what that's going to be. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it, it, the COVID crisis has thrown everything for a loop, right? I mean, it's harder to get movies made right now. Um, we might be one of the first features that's getting off the ground if we manage to do it in the next few weeks, um, which would be great. But, uh, you know, it's hard to get a lot of the projects I was involved with before COVID hit are now kind of like, well, are we ever going to be able to get this off the ground? I mean, like until they figure out how to deal with this, like how are we going to do it? You know? And so that's unfortunate. It's just, everyone's dealing with the same thing. Even TV production is just beginning to maybe start to kick in now. So it's a big question mark. Um, but you know, people are going to want content, you know, that's never going to change. People are going to get bored with their queue and Netflix and they're going to want new stuff. So you've got to provide that. So at some point, people are just, it's just, they're going to figure out a system. Well, Hopefully by that point, they'll have a vaccine. I'm always excited when I see the Brad Anderson on the title card. So I'm always looking oh, forward. Thank you. I'm always looking forward to anything that you have coming out. I hope everybody checks out everything that you have coming up. And yeah, it just means a lot that you came on here today. And uh, yeah, hopefully you had some fun. Thank you. Well, it was great. Great talking to you, and I really appreciate all the really good questions. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. Make sure to keep up with anything Brad Anderson that you see coming out. It's always amazing. And I think Trans-Siberian was just added to Amazon Prime, so if you haven't seen that film, go check it out. Go revisit all of his old projects. They're absolutely fantastic. He's an amazing filmmaker. This concludes our broadcast day.